Book Two, Chapters Five to Seven of On the Education of an Order by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Five. I will speak of the theory of declamation a little later. In the meantime, as we are discussing the elementary stages of a rhetorical education, I think I should not fail to point out how greatly the rhetorician will contribute to his pupil's progress if he imitates the teacher of literature whose duty it is to expound the poets and gives the pupils whom he has undertaken to train instruction in the reading of history and still more of the orators i myself have adopted this practice for the benefit of a few pupils of suitable age whose parents thought it would be useful but though my intentions were excellent i found that there were two serious obstacles to success long custom had established a different method of teaching and my pupils were for the most part full-grown youths who did not require this form of teaching but were taking my work as their model however the fact that i have been somewhat late in making the discovery is not a reason why i should be ashamed to recommend it to those who come after me i now know that this form of teaching is practiced by the greeks but is generally entrusted to assistants as the professors themselves consider that they have no time to give individual instruction to each pupil as he reads and i admit that the form of lecture which this requires designed as it is to make boys follow the written word with ease and accuracy and even that which aims at teaching the meaning of any rare words that may occur are to be regarded as quite below the dignity of the teacher of rhetoric on the other hand it is emphatically part of his profession and the undertaking which he makes in offering himself as a teacher of eloquence to point out the merits of authors or for that matter any faults that may occur and this is all the more the case as i am not asking teachers to undertake the task of recalling their pupils to stand at their knee once more and of assisting them in the reading of whatever book they may select it seems to me at once an easier and more profitable method to call for silence and choose some one pupil and it will be best to select them by turns to read aloud in order that they may at the same time learn the correct method of elocution the case with which the speech selected for reading is concerned should then be explained for if this is done they will have a clearer understanding of what is to be read when the reading is commenced no important point should be allowed to pass unnoticed either as regards the resourcefulness or the style shown in the treatment of the subject the teacher must point out how the orator seeks to win the favor of the judge in his exordium what clearness brevity and sincerity and at times what shrewd design and well-concealed artifice is shown in the statement of facts for the only true art in pleading is that which can only be understood by one who is a master of the art himself the teacher will produce further to demonstrate what skill is shown in the division into heads how subtle and frequent are the thrusts of argument what vigor marks the stirring and what charm the soothing passage how fierce is the invective 
and how full of wit the jests, and in conclusion, how the orator establishes his sway over the emotions of his audience, forces his way into their very hearts, and brings the feelings of his jury into perfect sympathy with all his words. Finally, as regards the style, he will emphasize the appropriateness, elegance, or sublimity of particular words, will indicate where the amplification of the theme is deserving of praise, and where there is virtue in a diminuendo, and will call attention to brilliant metaphors, figures of speech and passages combining smoothness and polish, with a general impression of manly vigor. It will, even at times, be of value to read speeches which are corrupt and faulty in style, but still meet with general admiration thanks to the perversity of modern tastes, and to point out how many expressions in them are inappropriate, obscure, high-flown, groveling, mean, extravagant, or effeminate, although they are not merely praised by the majority of critics, but worse still, praised just because they are bad. For we have come to regard direct and natural speech as incompatible with genius, while all that is in any way abnormal is admired as exquisite. Similarly, we see that some people place a higher value on figures which are in any way monstrous or distorted than they do on those who have not lost any of the advantages of the normal form of men. There are even some who are captivated by the shams of artifice, and think that there is more beauty in those who pluck out superfluous hair, or use depilatories, who dress their locks by scorching them with the curling iron, and glow with a complexion that is not their own, than can ever be conferred by nature pure and simple, so that it really seems as if physical beauty depended entirely on moral hideousness. It will, however, be the duty of the rhetorician not merely to teach these things, but to ask frequent questions as well, and test the critical powers of his class. This will prevent his audience from becoming inattentive, and will secure that his words do not fall on deaf ears. At the same time, the class will be led to find out things for themselves, and to use their intelligence, which is, after all, the chief aim of this method of training. For what else is our object in teaching, save that our pupils should not always require to be taught? I will venture to say that this particular form of exercise, if diligently pursued, will teach learners more than all the textbooks of all the rhetoricians. These are, no doubt, of very considerable use, but being somewhat general in their scope, it is quite impossible for them to deal with all the special cases that are of almost daily occurrence. The art of war will provide a parallel. It is no doubt based on certain general principles, but it will nonetheless be far more useful to know the methods employed, whether wisely or the reverse, by individual generals under varying circumstances and conditions of time and place. For there are no subjects in which, as a rule, practice is not more valuable than precept. Is a teacher to declaim, to provide a model for his audience, and will not more profit be derived from the reading of Cicero or Demosthenes? 
is a pupil to be publicly corrected if he makes a mistake in declaiming and will it not be more useful and more agreeable too to correct some actual speech for every one has a preference for hearing the faults of others censured rather than his own i might say more on the subject but every one can see the advantages of this method would that the reluctance to put it into practice were not as great as the pleasure that would undoubtedly be derived from so doing this method once adopted we are faced by the comparatively easy question as to what authors should be selected for our reading some have recommended authors of inferior merit on the ground that they were easier to understand others on the contrary would select the more florid school of writers on the ground that they are likely to provide the nourishment best suited to the mind of the young for my part i would have them read the best authors from the very beginning and never leave them choosing those however who are simplest and most intelligible for instance when prescribing for boys i should give livy the preference over sallust for although the latter is the greater historian one requires to be well advanced in one's studies to appreciate him properly cicero in my opinion provides pleasant reading for beginners and is sufficiently easy to understand it is position not only to learn much from him but to come to love him after cicero i should following the advice of livy place such authors as most nearly resemble him there are two faults of taste against which boys should be guarded with the utmost care firstly no teacher suffering from an excessive admiration of antiquity should be allowed to cramp their minds by the study of cato and the gracchi and other similar authors for such reading will give them a harsh and bloodless style since they will as yet be unable to understand the force and vigor of these authors in contenting themselves with a style which doubtless was admirable in its day but is quite unsuitable to ours will come to think and nothing could be more fatal that they really resemble great men secondly the opposite extreme must be equally avoided they must not be permitted to fall victims to the pernicious allurements of the precious blooms produced by our modern euphemists thus acquiring a passion for the luscious sweetness of such authors whose charm is all the more attractive to boyish intellects because it is so easy of achievement once however the judgment is formed and out of danger of perversion i should strongly recommend the reading of ancient authors since if after clearing away all the incautness of those rude ages we succeed in absorbing the robust vigor and virility of their native genius our more finished style will shine with an added grace i also approve the study of the moderns at this stage since even they have many merits for nature has not doomed us to be dullards but we have altered our style of oratory and indulged our caprices over much it is in their ideals rather than their talents that the ancients show themselves our superiors it will therefore be possible to select much that is valuable from modern writers but we must take care that precious metal is not debased by the dross with which it is so closely intermingled 
Further, I would not merely gladly admit, but would even contend, that we have recently had, and still have, certain authors who deserve imitation in their entirety. But it is not for every one to decide who these writers are. Error in the choice of earlier authors is attended with less danger, and I have therefore postponed the study of the moderns, for fear that we should imitate them before we are qualified to judge of their merits. 6. I come now to another point in which the practice of teachers has differed. Some have not been content with giving directions as to the arrangements of the subjects set them as themes for declamation, but have developed them at some length themselves, supplying not merely the proofs, but the lines upon which the emotional passages should proceed. Others have merely suggested a bare outline, and then, when the declamations were over, have indicated the points missed by each speaker, and worked up certain passages with no less care than they would have used, had they been going to stand up to speak themselves. Both practices have their advantages, and therefore I will not give either the preeminence. But if we must choose one of the two, it will be found more profitable to point out the right road at the outset, and not merely to recall the pupil from his error, when he has already gone astray, since in the first place the correction is only received by the ear, whereas when he is given a sketch of the various heads of the declamation, he has to take them down and think about them. Secondly, instruction is always more readily received than reproof. Indeed, those of our pupils who have a lively disposition are liable, in the present condition of manners, to lose their temper when admonished, and to offer silent resistance. That, however, is no reason for refraining from the public correction of faults, for we must take the rest of the class into account, who will believe that whatever has not been corrected by the master is right. The two methods should be employed conjointly, and in such a way as circumstances may demand. Beginners must be given a subject sketched out ready for treatment and suitable to their respective powers. But when they show that they have formed themselves sufficiently closely on the models placed before them, it will be sufficient to give them a few brief hints for their guidance, and to allow them to advance trusting in their own strength and without external support. Sometimes they should be left entirely to their own devices, that they may not be spoilt by the bad habit of always relying on another's efforts, and so prove incapable of effort and originality. But as soon as they seem to have acquired a sound conception of what they ought to say, the teacher's work will be near completion. If they still make some mistakes, they must be brought back under his guidance. We may draw a lesson from the birds of the air, whom we see distributing the food which they have collected in their bills among their weak and helpless nestlings. But as soon as they are fledged, we see them teaching their young to leave the nest and fly round about it, themselves leading the way. Finally, when they have proved their strength, they are given the freedom of the open sky and left to trust in themselves. 7. There's one practice at present in vogue for boys of the age under discussion, which ought, in my opinion, undoubtedly to be changed. 
they should not be forced to commit all their own compositions to memory and to deliver them on an appointed day as is at present the custom this practice is especially popular with the boys fathers who think that their sons are not really studying unless they declaim on every possible occasion although as a matter of fact progress depends mainly on industry for though i strongly approve of boys writing compositions and would have them spend as much time as possible over such tasks i had much rather that for the purpose of learning by heart passages should be selected from the orators or historians or any other works that may be deserving of such attention for it is a better exercise for the memory to learn the words of others than it is to learn one's own and those who have practiced this far harder task will find no difficulty in committing to memory their own compositions with which they are already familiar further they will form an intimate acquaintance with the best writings will carry their models with them and unconsciously reproduce the style of the speech which has been impressed upon the memory they will have a plentiful and choice vocabulary and a command of artistic structure and the supply of figures which will not have to be hunted for but will offer themselves spontaneously from the treasure house if i may so call it in which they are stored in addition they will be in the agreeable position of being able to quote the happy sayings of the various authors a power which they will find most useful in the courts for phrases which have not been coined merely to suit the circumstances of the lawsuit of the moment carry greater weight and often win greater praise than if they were our own i would however allow boys occasionally to declaim their own compositions that they may reap the reward of their labors in the applause of a large audience that most coveted of all prizes but this should not be permitted until they have produced something more finished than usual they will thus be rewarded for their industry and rejoice in the thought that the privilege accorded them is the recompense of merit end of book two chapter seven